0: It's a big theme, hugely important theme throughout the Bible, a hugely important theme for our lives, our lives dependent on this theme. Father, I pray tonight, God, as we come to study the Bible, I pray that you'd speak to us. I pray you'd speak right into our heart. I pray, God, for each one of us, God, you know exactly where every person in this auditorium is at. I pray, God, you'd do a work in our hearts. You'd take us somewhere, take us forward in life. Speak to us, God. Come, Holy Spirit, have your way among us. I pray for those who are needing your help tonight. I pray that you'd intervene for them, God. Do great things among us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, there was a priest sitting in a confessional booth one particular uh, afternoon, and he was waiting for someone to come in and ask for God's mercy. And he was sitting around, and no one was around. It was all quiet that afternoon. Eventually, after a long wait, one guy who's totally drunk walks, staggers into the church, and staggers into the confessional booth, and just sits down in silence. So the priest is sitting there waiting for the guy to say something, but he's just sitting there in silence. So the priest goes to try and get his attention. The guy just ignores him. So eventually, after a long silence wait, he went, excuse me. And the guy said, "Uh, there's no point disturbing me. There's no paper in here either, mate. That's the best joke I could find to link with mercy, so... There was a book written by a man called Simon Westenthal, who was a Jewish writer. He wrote a book called The Sunflower. He was alive during the, the Nazi campaign and the Holocaust, and he was a Jew working in a military hospital. He'd been used to being treated like dirt. With his whole nation, they were being oppressed. One day, a nurse came into the area in the hospital where he was working and said to him, there is a Nazi officer a couple of rooms along here. And he's requesting that he could speak to a Jew. Can you come and speak to him? And Simon Weston Hall said, I want nothing to do with him. I, I'm not interested, no thanks. He said, no, he's asked specifically to speak to a Jewish person and he's dying. He's got hours left. <clears throat> he's been severely burned. In fact, when you go in, you'll see he's wrapped from head to toe in bandages. You just see the occasional bit of flesh at the corner of the ear, a bit of his nostrils. Apart from that, he's just bandaged. He's in severe pain, he's only got hours to live, and he's asking to see a Jew. So eventually Simon Westonhall reluctantly went through into the other room. As he walked into the room, uh, the Nazi officer said, are you a Jewish man, sir? Westonhall was a bit taken aback because he was getting a bit of respect from a Nazi. And he said, I am. And the Nazi proceeded to say, I have murdered many, many of your people. I've set fire to a building some weeks ago where 800 of your men, women, and children were killed. I stood there while babies were being thrown out of windows of flame. None of us did anything to help. I set that blaze. We burned them. Now I myself am lying here with a burned body because of an accident. And as I'm dying, I have a lot of pain in my body, but I have a greater pain in my soul. I want to be forgiven. I don't know where to turn. I've asked you to come and ask if you as a representative of your people would pronounce forgiveness upon me. Westenthal didn't know what to do or didn't know what to think. The man continued, I plead with you, sir. Will you forgive me? Westenthal turned to walk away. Then the man begged, don't leave my room. I cannot die without someone from your race telling me that I am forgiven. And Westenthal said that he struggled and struggled, but he didn't know what to do. Eventually, he turned around, walked out of the room, and slammed the door behind him. Years later, Thal wrote to 32 influential thinkers around the world asking them, had he done the right thing? 26 wrote back saying, yes, you did the right thing. Six wrote back saying, we're not sure if you did the right thing. Forgiveness is a big issue. Mercy is a huge issue. Whether you realize it or not, it has a massive impact on how you're doing and how you will do eternally speaking. Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 verse 7 brings his next beatitude and says this blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy now this statement was brought in the midst of a merciless culture on the one hand he had the jews jewish leaders were ruthless individuals very narrow-minded very legalistic very hard line then on the other hand there was the secular the romans the romans were barbaric They didn't think blessed are the merciful. They thought blessed are the powerful, blessed are the aggressive, blessed are the vengeful, blessed are the domineering. That was their mentality. It was the case in Roman culture that Roman slaves could be killed at the whim of a master. They could legally kill slaves. Roman fathers had absolute authority over their children. And when I mean absolute authority, what I mean is they were able to throw them into prison and make them, or make, sell them as slaves. They could abandon them. They could even kill their own children. They had complete legal authority over their lives. It was the case that sometimes there was a tradition that as children were born in a Roman home, they were left at the feet of the father, and the father would either pick the child up, signifying that he would have this child, or he would walk out, signifying that he was abandoning this child. There were countless abandoned children. In Rome, inscrupulous individuals would come along and they would pick up these children. They would raise them as slaves for people's homes or worse, they would raise them as prostitutes for some of the brothels in Rome. This is a merciless culture. It was a culture where gladiators killed each other and there was merciless fighting for sport. And Jesus in that culture says, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. The big question with this statement, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. This is probably the most misunderstood of all the Beatitudes. It raises a huge question. People have misunderstood this statement thinking it somehow gives you another way to get saved. So we believe you get saved by believing in Jesus and his death and his resurrection. But this verse seems to indicate that if you are a merciful enough person, then at the end of your life, God will grant you mercy. That our mercy somehow triggers God's mercy. So let's answer this question first. Which comes first, God's mercy or ours? Is God's mercy to us in response to our mercy to each other? Or is our mercy to each other merely a response to the mercy that God has first shown us? That's a big question. If you can gain God's mercy ultimately by being a merciful person, it gives us two big problems in the Bible. And this is why I disagree with that. I disagree with it, number one, because if it's based on you being a merciful person as to whether God shows you mercy or not, I reckon none of us have got a chance. (laughs) Problem number one, we ain't been that merciful. Number two, it contradicts a ton of other stuff that the New Testament says that it's by grace we are saved because of our faith in Jesus. And it kind of contradicts that completely. And I don't believe in a Bible that contradicts itself. I believe in a Bible that you get an understanding of seeing a verse in the context of the whole. And then you understand what the verse means. So I don't believe that's what's being said. Let me use another parable that Jesus told to describe to you what I believe is being said in this beatitude. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Let's go to Matthew chapter 18, 23 to 35. And this is Jesus telling another parable, and I believe it answers the question we've just raised. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, his master ordered that he, his wife, and his children, and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay you back everything. The servant's master took pity on him and canceled all the debt. How much debt did he cancel? 10,000 talents. doesn't say gold or silver, but he canceled 10,000 talents. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii. How much did he owe him? 100 denarii. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell on his knees and begged him. Be patient with me, and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown in prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed, and they went and told the master everything that had happened. When the master called the servant in, he said, You wicked servants, he said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turns him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owes. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Wow. It's heavy. It's very strong. It's very poignant. Jesus has painted a very strong picture in our minds here. But listen, this answers the question, what comes first? Is it God's mercy or our mercy? Notice, the servant, he was offered mercy. And in response to that mercy, he didn't offer mercy to someone else. The picture here is about not just a master and a servant. The picture here is about God and us. I believe God has offered the human race mercy. The question is, how do we respond having been offered that mercy? Do we now go and be merciless towards others or do we, in gratitude for the mercy God has shown us, show mercy to other people? That's the big question. God's mercy comes first. Our mercy is a response to that. This gripped me last night. I was looking at this, reading this passage through, and I was—I I thought, what are the amounts being tabled here? And I, I got out the best source of all information in the whole world ever: Google. And I googled, how much is a talent worth? Because it says the first man owed him 10,000 talents and was brought to him. A talent is worth 34.3 kilograms. Now, we don't know if it's gold or silver. Let's just take the lowest, silver. A talent, if you had a a talent weight necklace, that would be a seriously heavy necklace. 34.3 kilograms. (laughs) That would be a very heavy necklace. Your head would fall off. That would be very heavy. A hundred talents, therefore, that was what the guy owed, was 343,000 kilograms of silver. According to today's currency, silver is worth 450 pounds per kilogram. That's the current figures. So what this man owed, 10,000 talents, therefore, equals over 154 million pounds. That's if it's silver. If it was gold he was referring to, it would be multiple times more than that. Now, I don't know about you, but that'd take me a few years to pay back. (laughs) That'd take me a few lifetimes to pay back that one. That'd take me dozens of lifetimes to pay back that one. He's describing a scale of debt that describes human to God debt. This is a debt a man owes to God. Human beings are utterly deprived. We're sinful. We have a huge debt before an eternal holy God. That's what's been described in the first instance, the ten thousands talents. We have a 145 sorry 145 million pounds debt and that relates to the debt God forgives a human being the moral debt now let's look at the next this servant having been forgiven this huge debt goes and finds another servant who owes him and it says one of his fellow servants owed him 100 denarii now what's a denarii well a denarii isn't a weight like a talent a denarii is a duration it's it's a day's work that's what a denarii is One denarii is one day's work. So 100 denarii is the equivalent of 100 days' work or 100 days' wages. Now, that's a lot of money. But compared to 154 million, it pales into insignificance. And this relates to -to human-to-human debt. God doesn't belittle when you get hurt by a human being. That's not a small thing. 100 days' wages isn't small, folks. It's still big. But in proportion to 154 million, it's not much really. So in response to God's mercy, forgiving us an eternal, colossal, several lifetimes debt, should we not, in response, be merciful to others? That's what's being said here. Dr. James Roscoe said this, When a man lives without mercy others in God's world. He simply shows off the fact that he himself has never responded aright to the immeasurable mercy of God. The mercy a man has shown others is the fruit of a life touched by God's saving mercy, and this mercy will triumph over judgment. His own sins worthy of judgment are removed by God's working in his life. Dissolves all the charges strict justice might bring against him. His showing of mercy is not a matter of heaping up personal merit to deserve salvation by his good works. The mercy he shows is itself a work of God for which he can take no credit. You showing mercy to another human being tells me that you have understood that your 154 million pound debt was cleared. When you show mercy to another human being, no matter how big what they did to you, even the biggest crime another human being can pay against you, does not compare to the magnitudes, the immeasurableness of how much mercy God Almighty, the Creator, has had towards us, sinful human beings. It's huge. How could we not be merciful? That's why it says in Jeremiah 22:16, 16, he, talking about King Josiah, Josiah defended the cause of the poor and the needy, and so it went well with him. Is that not what it means to know me, declares the Lord? God's here saying, He is a king he was being merciful to the poor. That's an overflow of the fact that he knows me. God sees a saved person as a person who it results in a mercifulness towards other people. The hallmark of a truly saved person is that they are a merciful person because they know how much debt has been canceled on their account. This kind of lines up with what we've been looking at in the last five weeks. We, We looked five weeks ago at the Beatitudes. We started with blessed are the poor in spirit. That's people saying, do you know what? Without God, I've got nothing. And that's a human being saying, I am nothing without God. That's a poor in spirit person. That's your starting point. That moves on to blessed are those who mourn. Because you realize, man, I've got nothing without God. And man, I've got sin in my life. I need God's forgiveness. Then that leads on to blessed are the meek. Because looking at being poor in spirit and having sin in my life, man, how could I be cocky and proud? I need God. And then that leads you to, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. We looked at that last week. So here are the people who've realized their need, and now they're saying, man, I need now God to fill me with his righteousness. And then we discovered last week that God makes you righteous. He forgives you all your sin. And that naturally leads to today. Having God forgiven you all your sin, having that journey been gone, now you're forgiven. Out of the overflow of that being forgiven, you're saying, I'm going to be merciful. D.A. Carson said this, the one who is not merciful is inevitably so unaware of his own state that he thinks he needs no mercy. It's like the alcoholic who refuses to acknowledge he's an alcoholic. Have you noticed that the alcoholic who refuses to acknowledge he's an alcoholic, the biggest problem he has is with other alcoholics? The biggest frustration he has with, this, with those alcoholics because he's refusing to acknowledge his own issue. The person who refuses to acknowledge their need for mercy, they will typically be very unmerciful towards others. That's the way it goes. But the person who is acknowledged and realizes the hugeness of God's mercy towards them, it comes a lot easier to be merciful towards others. So here's two big issues that we need to look at, and this is the order we're doing it. first issue is God's mercy towards us, and the second issue is our mercy as a result towards each other. So let's look at them. God's mercy towards us. First of all, God's general mercies towards all human beings. Whether people are believers or not, God has expressed mercy towards human beings. It says in Matthew 5, verse 45, He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. And He sends the rain, and some more rain, and a bit more rain, on the righteous and the unrighteous. That's Scotland. Scottish translation of the Bible. We we see God showers uh, rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. I think that this relates not just to physical rain. I think it talks about God's just general blessings, God's general mercies in life. We are exposed to all these goodnesses of God, whether you're a believer or not. It says in Acts 17, 25, He himself gives all men life and breath. In other words, every human being, whether they acknowledge God or not, exists, breathes, lives, has a heartbeat because God causes them to live. It's a general mercy of God. Thomas Morton, the Puritan, said this, every time you draw your breath, you suck in mercy. You're blessed of God. There's a story of an old Jewish rabbi uh, who one day in the town square met a very old traveler who was passing through the village. And uh, he said because Jewish people are very hospitable, he said, well, will you come, and I can give you food and board. So the man came back to his house, and he provided him with food, and he discovered this man was nearly 100 years old. In the course of conversation, the Jewish rabbi, who was very devout, asked the man, so what religion are you? And the old 100-year-old man said, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in God. At this point, the Jewish rabbi got so upset, he stood up and slammed his fist on the table and said, you will not live under my house then. And he forced the man out of, the, out of his house. And he came back into the house having slammed the door behind the atheist and sat down with a, at his table with a candle and his Torah opens. At that point, he heard God say in a very soft voice, son, why did you turn that old man away? And he said, I turned him away because he's an atheist, God. I can't endure him even one night. And God said, son, I've endured him nearly 100 years. (laughs) Didn't you think you could endure him one night? At that point, the rabbi got up and ran after the man and welcomed him back into his home like a brother. You see, God's general mercies are nothing to do with whether you believe in God or not. It's to do with the fact you're a human being and God values you. He has given you life and breath. And God shows blessing to people even who ignore him and don't thank him for it that's his general mercy, but now there are specific mercies. His saving mercy. You see, many people have wrongly interpreted mercy. They've seen mercy as a kind of easygoing attitude. So, if you upset me and do a crime against me, and I kind of say, oh, we'll not really worry about it. Don't worry. That's mercy. It's kind of, you're easygoing. You kind of brush under the carpet. Oh, it's not that boring. I won't have to tell you that God is not easygoing. He's not easygoing. Here's three big facts. Number one, we're sinners. Number two, God will judge sin. Number three, if God doesn't judge sin and ignores sin and is easygoing, that would make him unjust. And then we'd all be in trouble. You see, if someone came and killed a very close relative of yours, and in the court case, the judge said, I'm quite an easygoing judge. I know it's the first time you've ever killed someone. So this time, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt, we'll, we'll just let you off with it. That wouldn't be merciful. That would be unjust. And you'd be so upset. How could that man do that? Because that's unjust. God is not merciful in an easygoing way. That's not what mercy means. God doesn't, can't ignore sin. If God ignored sin, God would be unjust. If God had ignored injustices, he would cease to be just. And if God ceases to be just, this whole earth would fly off its axis. Everything depends on God being a just and upright God. So we have a dilemma. And this dilemma, I believe, is answered in John 8, where there's an episode in the life of Jesus. John 8, 2 to 11. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him. He sat down to teach them, and the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? They were using this question to trap him in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept questioning him, he straightened up and said, if any one of you is without sin let him be the first to throw a stone at her and he again stooped down and wrote in the ground. at this those who heard began to go away one at a time the oldest ones first until only Jesus was left the only one without sin only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there Jesus straightened up and asked her woman where are they has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. One day you will stand before God. One day I will stand before God. How important do you think mercy will be on that day? You're not going to get many things that are going to be anything that is near important as mercy on that day here this woman stood before god and she stood condemned the law that the pharisees had risen against her was found in deuteronomy twenty-two twenty-two, where it says if a man is found sleeping with another man's wife both the man and who slept with her and the woman must die you must purge evil from israel the law's there it's black and white who wrote the law? God wrote the law. Who is Jesus? God. The same God whose finger inscribed the law is the same God who now writes in the sand with his finger. It seems he's violating his own law. It seems he sets a law and then he doesn't have the courage to follow through with it when it's all said and done. But that's not what's happening. Jesus isn't easy going, He can't just ignore sin. When he said, neither do I condemn you, he was not ignoring justice. Gordon J. Keddie said this, God's mercy is never at the expense of his justice. How could he say, neither do I condemn you? Here's why. Because Jesus said, neither do I condemn you, he knew that within a few months of that event, he would die in her place, condemned on her behalf, so that justice could be done. The crime she had committed would be paid for, but he was going to pay it for her. It's the only way he could have said, neither do I condemn you. God, the lawgiver, pays the price for the law that he instigated against the sinner. That's amazing. Mercy is extended. Justice is satisfied. No contradiction. In 1 Peter 3, 18, it says, For Christ died for our sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. Jesus, the righteous one, died for us, the unrighteous ones. We're the sinners. We're the ones who deserve to be condemned. We're the ones with 154 million pound debt morally stacked against us. Dozens of lifetimes to pay it off. And yet, God eradicates it, not because he's easygoing not because he kind of cast a blind eye to it, but because he dealt with it on the cross. Because Jesus, the righteous one, died in our place. And he is therefore your only hope of salvation. Died in your place. Rose again, offers you salvation. That's good news. You see, when you get what you deserve, we call that payment or a wage. It says in Romans six twenty three, the wages of sin is death. Our sin is results in eternal death and separation from God. When we get what we don't deserve, we call that grace. An easy way to remember that, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. And when you don't get what you do deserve, we call it mercy. You see, if you're going to get anything good in judgment day, it's going to be 100% mercy and 0% wage. Dr. Barnhouse said this, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, all the work of God for man's salvation passed out of the realm of prophecy and became historic fact. God has now had mercy upon us. All the mercy that God ever will have on man, he has already had when Christ died. That is the totality of mercy. There could not be any more and God can now act towards us in grace because he has already had all the mercy on us. The fountain is now open and it's overflowing and it continues to flow freely. God on the cross dealt with the justice issue so that we could have mercy. Our mercy is a response to his mercy. Now you didn't ask God to do that for you. But tough, he did it. All the folks walking down Gorgie Road didn't ask God to do that for them. He didn't wait for their permission. He knew the needs. And in his love, he satisfied his justice by dying in our place on the cross. Mercy has been extended. God did the first step. God's mercy to us was first. Now, in response to his mercy, we therefore respond and live merciful lives. We are merciful recipients of mercy. So our mercy towards others, that's just a natural byproduct of God's mercy towards us. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. The word mercy is the Greek word eleo, which means it, it goes beyond compassion, it goes beyond sympathy. It means compassion in action, sympathy in action towards anyone who is in need, to help the afflicted, to bring help to the wretched. Mercy means many things. It means, firstly, you will have an ability to forgive others. Because you know how much God has forgiven you, you will therefore find it easier to be able to forgive others. Remember Jesus as he hung on the cross? While the people were still hurling the insults at Him. they were completely unrepentant, totally disinterested in, in what they had done. They were not remorseful in the slightest. And yet Jesus, hanging on the cross, says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. In that moment, he extended forgiveness to the people who weren't even repenting. Stephen, the first martyr recorded in the New Testament, we find in the book of Acts. Stephen, as he was being martyred, the Bible says he fell on his knees, he was being stoned to death. And as he was dying, being stoned to death, he was saying, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. I mean, that's incredible. Sounds like a guy who knows he's had 154 million pounds worth of debt cancelled. And he figures, this 100-day wage debt that they're putting on me now, they're stoning me to death, in comparison to what has been extended to me, I can even forgive this. <laughs> it's incredible. And amazingly, his prayer was answered. Saul, who was standing there giving consent to the stoning of Stephen... Saul, he was the one who instigated the stoning. His prayer was answered. Saul became Paul, met Jesus, became one of the greatest propagators of the Christian faith. Mercy expresses itself in our ability to forgive others because we know how much we have been forgiven. To illustrate this, I'm going to let you hear a short interview. I was speaking a few months ago at a church down in Lancaster, Christians Alive, pastors by my friend called Marcus Mosley. His dad's In fact, Marcus lost his sister in a tragedy a number of years ago, and his dad, John Mosley, I did an interview with him about the loss of his daughter. I'll let you watch this. Hi, John. Thanks for being willing to do this interview. John, can you tell us about the events that took place in
1: 1988? Uh, I took my 19-year-old daughter down to Heathrow, checked her bags in there, and uh, kissed her goodbye. I remember she said, she uh, said, no, I've got to call mum when, when the flight goes. No. I remember saying to her that I loved her. It didn't always look like it because I've been a very strict father. And off she went. And uh, a little later that evening, the phone rang and it was a widow lady in our church. She just loved Helga. And she said, did Helga get away all right, her. I said, yeah, why "When?" She said, well, there's been a plane crash in Scotland. I switched on the television, called my wife, and our son Marcus, who was then 15, saw the little town of Lockerbie in flames. And then it came on: Pan Am Flight 103. He didn't register with me. These things don't happen to us. My wife said, "That's Helga's plane." And you can imagine the stunned silence, which was broken by screaming at the television: "No! No! No! No!" And then my wife just whispering, Helga, 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 I couldn't find any words. And we switched off a television set and stood in our room and put our arms around each other and prayed and asked God to help us.
0: And John, how did you cope with that over the months and years following?
1: Well, you know, uh, Peter, the grace of God is a tremendous thing. And the peace of God, you know the scriptures, peace of God that passes understanding. I think a better translation of the Greek really is the peace of God makes sense. And we have been so amazed and almost felt guilty at times that we have such a peace, such a sense of the peace of God in our lives. And it's the grace of God. Uh, There have been a lot of tears and there's been a lot of pain. It's got less as the years have gone by. 21 years ago now. Overwhelmingly, there's been this sensation of the peace of God. Our daughter, she knew the Lord, and we know where she is. And so that has given us a great sense of peace. And God has strengthened us in it
0: all. And, and John, our human nature would want to get revenge and would have feelings of revenge and anger. How have you tackled yes, those feelings?
1: Natural. that is natural. Um, and uh, most what I would say, would have felt like that. And if someone had asked me a week before it happened uh, how would you feel about people who come on a plane to kill your daughter, I think I would have said well I hope I would react well but I couldn't be sure. When it came to it, Peter, it was not difficult. We have never had any sense of bitterness, anger, we've never wanted revenge, we stood The next day in our home, and we talked about it, and we said, well, whoever did this, we pity them. But their lives are so small and so narrow and so lacking in joy that they have to do things like this for whatever their reasons, religious or political.
0: John, what's amazing about this story um, is that you have gone on to get to know Macraehy, and can you tell, yes. tell people a little bit about that?
1: Uh, he wanted to see me. I spoke to him on the telephone and told him that he, as far as I was concerned, I didn't think he was guilty. I was pretty pretty convinced he was not guilty, but even if he was, and only he and God knew that, as far as we are concerned, as far as our family is concerned, he was forgiven.
0: So we're talking about a Beatitudes that has a not just an eternal implication. But we're talking about a statement of Jesus, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. A a statement that actually impacts human life. A statement that empowers human beings. A statement that literally changes cultures. It creates an ability, when you understand the mercy that God has shown you, the reality of that, it creates in you an ability to forgive Beyond your natural human ability to forgive. Blessed are you. The other thing that mercy does is mercy helps you see the big issues and stops you getting caught up in little religious judgmental issues. Jesus in Matthew 9:10 to 13, it says, While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples. Why does your teacher eat with the tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous but sinners. Jesus was quoting there from Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, where the prophet Hosea says, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and the acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Sacrifice and burnt offerings represent religious ritual, religious regulations, religious ways of doing things. The Hosea is making the point, and Jesus is reiterating the point, God's more interested in your ability to show mercy to human beings than he is in you ticking your religious boxes. Saying God's more interested in you having an authentic relationship, the acknowledgement of God, rather than he is in you ticking your religious boxes. So here was the Pharisees. They were more concerned that Jesus, this rabbi, was associating with riffraff. They were more concerned that Jesus was associating with unclean people. You're going to pollute yourself, religious Jesus. They were missing entirely the big point, and this is Jesus' issue. He said, you're totally missing the big issue. You're concerned about your religious tick boxes. I'm concerned about these human beings who happen to be sinners and tax collectors. God's concern is for people. And you might think, well, that doesn't really affect me, but it does. I'm very much against abortion. I'm strongly against it because I'm for human life. I believe in human life from the moment of conception. I'm against abortion passionately. But what about the lassie who's had an abortion who now is suffering with mental issues? She's facing constant waves of depression. What's my attitude? serves a right. The attitude has got to be, we love the girl. We support the girl. You see, you've got your convictions, but don't allow your convictions to stop you showing mercy to another human being. See, you might be passionately against drug and drink abuse, and you're saying, well, they got that liver disease because of their years of abuse, so to be honest, they deserves it. And really, the NHS shouldn't support people like that because, so what you've done is you've got your conviction, and it's a good conviction, it's a true conviction. But you're allowing that religious tick box to become something that helps you, that causes you to miss the bigger issue of showing mercy to another human being. Mercy gives someone what they don't deserve. And that's not just about others. That's about me. Because if we're going to look at that, I've got to look at some of my issues. Mercy finally means helping other human beings. It says in Luke 10, 25 to 37, on one occasion, an expert of the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind's and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answers correctly, Jesus replies. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, now just let me kind of stop there for a moment, who is my neighbor was a hotly debated subject. You see, the Jews knew God's command was to love your neighbor. But what they were debating was, well, who's the neighbor? And many Jewish rabbis were propagating this thinking that the Jewish neighbor was the fellow Jew. When God said, love your neighbor, he surely didn't mean love your Gentile neighbor, but he didn't mean love your fellow Jew. Keep it within the confines of God's people. Love one another, God's people. So when they were saying, so who is my neighbor? They were wanting Jesus' take on this current debate. Some said, no, neighbors include everyone, But many of the hardline Jews were saying, no, no, it's only Jewish people. Rabbi Jesus, what do you think? And in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes. They beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going along down the same roads. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to that place, saw him, and he passed by on the other side. But Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was. When he saw him, he took pity on him, and he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and put the man on his donkey, and took him to an inn and took care of him. Next day, he took two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think the neighbor was to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert of the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. I even love how Jesus didn't actually give the answer. He got the guy to give the answer. I mean, this is loaded. Who is my neighbor? Well, the Jews said it's the fellow Jew. In fact, Jewish people were very racist their attitude was that if you killed a Jew, you had the death penalty. But if you killed a Gentile, you wouldn't get anything like that. In fact, they said killing a Gentile isn't really appropriate, but in war you can. Their attitude was if a Gentile person was struggling for his life and you saw him and you could help, you were under no obligation to help. That was their attitude. In more extreme, they were totally vehemently against Samaritans. They cursed Samaritans as part of their public worship service in their synagogues. (laughs) Now we've sung our songs, now it's the point where we curse the Samaritans, you know. Then we'll take up the offering and, you know, it's just like, whoa, this is nuts. They were totally anti-Samaritans. Jesus in this parable said, a man was walking along between Jerusalem and Jericho. Notice Jesus didn't say what race the man was. He just said a man. Because he wanted to make a big point. It's not about the race. A man was walking along. And then he said along came a priest and a Levite. A priest is like a minister. And a Levite is like a worship leader. Jesus chose two people that the audience would have said, they're the good guys. If you'd said, if anyone was saved, they would be saved. And yet... A saved person displays the fact that they understand they have been a recipient of mercy by expressing mercy to others, right? It's not that their mercy to others gets them saved. It's their mercy to others is evidence of their understanding that they've had mercy given to them. And here these people, who were meant to be the saved ones, the priests, the minister, and the Levite, the worship leader, it didn't look like they were saved in this story, And then Jesus said, and along came the Samaritan. When he said that, the crowd would have gasped. It would have been like him saying, then along came the homosexual Taliban pedophile. No, it would have been just like that. Along came the homosexual Taliban pedophile. No, that doesn't fit in the story. But that's what Jesus said. Jesus said, along came the Samaritan, and it would have shocked the audience. And in the story, the Samaritan's the good guy. And what happens? The Bible says the Samaritan, when he saw him, what did he do? He saw the man in need. You know, some of us are so absorbed in our own lives, we do not see need. Some of us are so caught up with our own issues and own concerns that we literally cannot even see need around us. We're blinkered. We're consumed with self. And it's not that your issues aren't important and aren't serious. And it's not that God isn't concerned about your issues. It's that our issues have blinkered us and caused us to ignore everyone else's issues. The Samaritan saw. We need to learn to start to see. Lift your eyes. Life's bigger. There's people around you. They also feel. They also have lives. They also have hopes. They also feel letdowns. See. See. And then it says, when he saw him, it says, he took pity on him. What does that mean? It means he had an internal response to that person that he saw. So it's not enough just to see. You need to have an internal response to someone. This is moving now into the realm of mercy. Mercy talks about compassion. It talks about feeling pity for someone who's in a wretched situation. This is what happens. The Samaritan starts to have an internal response to this human being. Let yourself have that, folks. Don't harden yourself to the point where you don't want to feel that. I don't want to go there. I don't want to expose myself to that emotion. Go there. Allow yourself to feel it. Don't just see. Allow yourself to feel something. When you see someone in need, don't just say, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to feel it because I'm not the one to deal with it. The pastor, he'll deal with it. Or that leader in the church, they'll deal with their problems. Or it's okay, an ambulance will be along soon. I don't need to intervene. Or, I can't intervene, they'll sue me if I do. And as a result, we hold back the emotion. We stop ourselves, we we give ourselves numerous excuses why we can't be the one to be moved about that situation. Allow yourself to be moved by the plight of human beings. And then it says, he responded externally. So he he saw, he responded internally, then he responded externally. Because mercy isn't just compassion, it's compassion resulting in action. And it says he bandaged his wounds. He poured oil and wine on the wounds. He put the man on his donkey. He took him to an inn. He cared for him. The next day, he paid the man who's the innkeeper for the care he provided. And he said, When I come back, any more expense that is incurred by this man, I will cover that bill as well. We assume the guy probably wasn't that busy, had a bit of time on his hands and had a surplus of money. That's why he was able to do that. Right? Could it be, however, that this Samaritan was on a business trip? He had a meeting to get to in Jericho. He was being delayed in this process. Could it be that, I mean, it couldn't be that that was his last penny he spent on this man. Could it have been? Why not? It could have been. We kind of write ourselves out of the picture saying, well, I haven't got the time to meet the need. I haven't got the money to meet the need. I'm struggling myself and we assume that this samaritan did you see there's never convenient time to help another person never you don't plan in your diary and on that day i'm going to come across a random accident and i will just plan in time to help that person then it doesn't work with your schedule and yet god requires of us to be merciful it doesn't work with your budget and yet god requires of us to be merciful and this is radical christianity And this is what Jesus is saying, I've cancelled 145 million pounds worth of your moral debt before God. Go meet someone's 100 denarii's debt. Clear it for them. Go out your way on behalf of others. Serve someone. Meet their needs. Relieve their suffering. So I want to encourage you, start in the church. Don't be a random collection of people who happen to gather to sing some songs and hear a funny preacher and go and have a coffee and go home and done your religious bit for the week don't be that that's not church church is family a gathering isn't going to change a city a family will an army will a gathering won't we're not crowds we're the people of God so we've got to act like the people of God so I want to encourage you don't be cold with each other lift your eyes out of your life and look around you let's start here I was reading on our, we've got a Facebook site for the church. Feel free to join up with the Facebook site. And it's a place for dialogue, discussion, hearing news, events. People share things, share photos and things. Here's a comment I came across as I was reading the Facebook wall the other day there. A few weeks ago, I spoke to a lady in church She was standing on her own in the cafe. She'd been coming to the church for a year, she told me. But she didn't have a friend in the church, not even a Sunday friend. Helena Rogers wrote that as a comment, and Helena went out of her way to befriend that lady in the cafe. Did you ever notice that lady? That lady or that guy is there every Sunday. In crowds of hundreds of people that come into our services, there are dozens and dozens of people who, for them, they don't know anyone here. And you think you're the new person, but they've been newer than you. And I want to encourage you, don't just be consumed with your own life, Don't just chat to your own friends. Don't just chat to people from the same race as you. It's easy to do that. Or the same age group as you. That's easy. Or the same social class you perceive as you. That's easy. How about getting out of comfort zones and chatting to someone from a different race than you? Different age group from you? Different perceived social class than you? Building bridges, seeing needs that are beyond your own little world. Then allow yourself also to be exposed with compassion to other people. Don't think, because you've just become aware of a need that someone in the church will know. Don't think that, oh, the pastor will sort the problem. The church is too big now, and the church was never designed to be a one-man show. It was always designed to be an army where everyone cares, where everyone looks out. You see, I reckon if we get you all looking out and all loving, then God can add thousands of people to our church, and they'll be covered. Because we've got an army of people looking out for people. So allow yourself to be moved. When someone says, I'm fine, see past that if there's an issue. Some people say that and you know they're not. But you were so consumed in your own world, you didn't hear the undertone. So listen for the undertone. Be moved with compassion and meet needs. In your community, when you're out doing your work, on the way to work, in your workplace, I believe every day God will send dozens of opportunities our direction from which we can show out of gratitude for the mercy shown to us, we can show mercy to another human being. Don't avoid those. You can't schedule for them. It's inconvenient, but meet the needs. If we have hundreds of people in our church, in our city, who are going into our city, in among the thousands of people in our city, just now, one in every 1,000 people in Edinburgh attend Destiny Church. Our dream is, by 2027, that one in every 100 people in our city attend Destiny Church. That's our dream. But just now, one in every 1,000. And if you as one in one thousands, show mercy. We start to impact our city with God's God's love, demonstrating the mercy he's shown to us. So go out your way, demonstrate love. You can also get involved with some of the initiatives we've got on that are actively showing mercy in our city. Working with Destiny Angels. Jude, give us a wave. Jude, here your heads up our social action programs. Put your hand up high so everyone can see it. Jude heads up Destiny Angels, which is a call center that people can phone in and we mobilize people in all over the city to help meet needs. We send out food parcels to people who are hungry on our doorsteps in Edinburgh. Every week we've got people working in Gorgie and Leith and two of the de- quite deprived housing areas. We're doing adopt a block, cleaning stairwells, picking up litter, offering to pray for people. We're doing homeless, we've got two teams of homeless teams going out through the week feeding the homeless, and on Saturday morning feeding the homeless through our caravan. Why not get involved with some of these initiatives? Be a, let's be a merciful church that embraces the city. You can also, Jude's heading up a team of people going to Los Angeles next summer. If you're interested in going in that trip, go to com forward slash dreamtrip.aspx. And that's an opportunity to be part or partner with a great church over there in Los Angeles where they're literally feeding thousands of people every day, making a huge impact. They're really setting the bar high of what a church can do in terms of massive impact and my hope is that we don't just go over there and be a blessing but also we coming back inspired ready to do some great things here if you're thinking what do I want to do next summer for my holidays and probably it's probably not a family holiday (laughs) hey kids go play in the park mind the needles you know probably not the best family holiday uh, but you know if, 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 if you haven't got family and you think where could we go on holiday well why not go to LA have an exciting holiday I guarantee you sunshine. Don't know about a beach, but I guarantee you sunshine. One day, a boy called Dave was left by his mom on a street corner in a city in New York. He was told by his mom, wait here, and he waited. He waited all that day. His mom never came. Right through the night, and the next day. Three days, little Dave waited in that corner. No mom came. On the third day, a man called Dave passed, and there was little, so i got the names out of it, Bill was the little kid, and Dave was the guy who passed in the car, and he'd obviously seen Bill, the little boy, standing on this street corner for three days in a row, and he had compassion on him. He saw, he had an internal response, now he's doing the external thing. He drove up, opened his door, said, lad, come with me. Now, that usually would not be safe, but Dave was safe. So Bill, who'd been abandoned by his mum, was now adopted, as it were, by this guy called Dave. It was inconvenient for Dave completely. His own son was very, very ill, and he was having financial difficulties himself. So it was very inconvenient for him to have Bill staying in the house. So he gave him a cupboard to sleep in, and he looked after him, and he raised him to believe in Jesus. Bill is now in his 60s, and he leads the biggest Sunday school in the world, Metro Ministries in inner-city New York Making a huge difference. You see, when you understand that you are a recipient of mercy, showing mercy to others comes a lot easier. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said this An individual has not started living until he can rise above the, individual, the, the narrow confines of his individualistic concerns to the broader concerns of all humanity. Life's most persistent and urgent question is this What are you doing for others? Not that we have to do stuff to get saved. It's the authentically saved people out of the overflow of the mercy that has been shown to them. It's a natural thing to extend mercy. And it's a blessed thing. Father God, we worship you tonight. The God who has forgiven us. The God who has loved us. The God who has extended mercy towards us. We worship you, God. We worship you, God. Just take a moment before God just to reflect and to respond quietly in your heart to God. Maybe something's provoked something in you tonight, challenged you. Maybe it's a forgiveness issue. Maybe you've been very judgmental and religious. Maybe you've not been moved when you've seen the need. Just take a moment, just as the musicians play quietly, just to respond to God and talk to him about those things. Said, "Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy." I pray, God, give us the privilege, God, of being a merciful church. Forgive us when we've got it wrong. Help us to be merciful towards each other, towards the hundreds of precious individuals that you're bringing into our services every week. Help us to start there. Help us to start in our families, and help it to overflow into our workplaces, into our communities, into our streets, into our neighborhoods. Give us the privilege of being a merciful church, expressing to a city that there's a God in heaven who shows mercy. Let's go big in that, we pray, God. Please, God, in Jesus' name. Some of you have Hanging on to long standing unforgiveness issues with other people. I want to encourage you to fully grasp how much God has forgiven you. Ponder on that. Ask God to give you a deep revelation of that. while we're praying that there might be some of you here tonight and you know that you don't really think you're saved you're thinking about God's mercy and you're thinking well I don't know if I, I've experienced that mercy the question is when you die you going to heaven the question is have you known God's total forgiveness in your life have you become a recipient of God's mercy Even though he did it for you on the cross, have you personally engaged with that and accepted that and made that your forgiveness, made that your acceptance? If you haven't, why not make that decision just now? If that's you tonight, I'm going to help you do that just now. If you're here and you're saying, Peter, I need God's total forgiveness. I need to be saved. I want God in my life. If you're saying, Peter, I'm willing to put my faith in Jesus who died on the cross and rose again. I'm willing to let him be Lord of my life and to start to live for him instead of me. If that's you tonight, then allow me to lead you in a prayer. Make that decision. Pray with me just now. If that's you, just quietly under your breath, repeat this prayer after me. Pray, dear Lord God, thank you for your incredible love for me thank you that you were willing to die in my place paying the price for the sin that I'd committed so that I could experience forgiveness and mercy thank you Jesus on the third day you rose from the dead thank you you're alive right now come into my life and forgive me give me a new star I pray Jesus, I declare you to be the Lord of my life from now on. And to the best of my ability, I will follow you. Thanks for hearing my prayer and accepting me tonight as your child. Amen. Keep your eyes closed. If you prayed that prayer, I believe God heard you. I would love the privilege of praying for you in order to know who I'm praying for if you pray that prayer can I just ask you to do a very simple thing you just identify yourself by quickly raising your hand and then in a moment I'll pray for those who do that just if you prayed that prayer and made that commitment just pop your hand up just now then pop it down again Is anyone like that today? thanks anyone else? anyone else before I pray? opportunity anyone else you prayed that prayer before I pray Could your hand up okay God thank you so much for this precious last thank you she's prayed thank you she's asked you for forgiveness thank you she's accepted what you did for her on the cross and I thank you God according to your bible in that moment your bible says that she's saved I pray God that she would know immensity of your love towards her I pray right now she would know the hugeness of your forgiveness that God as she has put her faith in you the Bible says she's saved
1: that you're her father
0: and her life is in your hands I pray help her now God to live for you tomorrow and for the rest of her days and help her to find a good church where she can grow in her faith in Jesus name Stand. We're going to worship God to end the service.